Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up on a Wednesday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. We've got Weldon Rodenberg pinch hitting a little bit outside of his normal Sunday spot. He was at the Saints game this weekend, but wanted to catch up with him still. Give Buchanan a week off and uh, talk to him a little bit about the Vanderbilt game, but more so what the opportunities ahead are for Ole Miss. Look around the SEC at large. And then a soccer corner that features a footballer who got a cracked skull and returned to the pitch. So what's the real football? You tell me. Great show. I think you'll enjoy it. But before we get to that, though, I want to remind you the podcast is brought to you by a new sponsor. We are proud to welcome Ray Stevens, real estate agent with Square Real Estate in Oxford. Ray can help you list a home for sale or buy your dream home. Whether you're looking for a two-bedroom condo, extra getaway, or your five-bedroom dream house, Ray takes pride in helping people find homes that they'll enjoy and cherish for forever. Or maybe you're trying to sell one before you go to your next home. He can help remove the hassle that comes with that. He is awesome. He provides individual service to each and every one of his clients. All you have to do is give him a call at 601-624-4824 and he'll hook you right up. The home buying and selling process can be hard. What to look for, what's on the market, what's a good price. Ray's going to listen to your needs and help you find the best fit possible. I wouldn't send you to people I don't trust. Known him for a long time. Loves doing business with Oxford and Ole Miss people and helping people find homes that they will enjoy forever. Check him out, 601-624-4824. Let him know we sent you, heard about it on the pod, and he will get you taken care of. Broker number is 662-832-7777. Ray Stevens, Square Real Estate. Check him out, one of the best in the business. Love that guy and glad he's a part of the Rippy Rides podcast family now. Check him out. Please let him know we sent you. Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Are you tired of losing money to your bookie every week? We're about six, seven weeks into the college football season now. You're probably down. Let Skybox help get you back up. Go online, find a fixed package that fits your price range. You can try it for a month, day, week, whatever. I'd recommend signing up for the year-long all-sports pass. It will pay for itself and then some, I can promise you that. And boom, you're one step closer to actually winning money. They send you the picks in a nice official looking email spreadsheet. It's color coded, easy to read, and you are better equipped to make money than you were 10 minutes ago. They are the professionals, best in the business, hammered college football, college basketball, and the NFL winning record profit at least the last three years since I've been dealing with them. Skyboxsportspicks.com, the best in the business. Go check those guys out and buy some merch while you're at it. They have awesome hats. I'm getting a couple new ones here this weekend, I believe. And uh, looking forward to rocking those around. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E. That'll get you 20% off any purchase. All right, here is Weldon Rodenberg on a lot of college football stuff. All right, we now welcome on former Ole Miss recruiting specialist, Rippy Wright's football correspondent, Weldon Rodenberg. A little bit out of rotation. We uh, had some pinch hitting getting done this week. You were at the Saints game this weekend, which, uh, if my geography is correct, would tell me you were back in Louisiana might be maybe saw a glimpse of you at Tiger Stadium this weekend as well. Uh, nice trip back home. What uh, what's happening? How was the weekend? Weekend was great. Um, went in a little early, played some golf. Um, went to Tiger Stadium, watched that beat down uh, at 11 a.m., which was interesting to say the least. Uh, then got to go to the Saints game, and it looked a little sketchy early. Uh, they finally pulled it out. You know, Taysom Hill earning his 
14 million a year or whatever it is. Um, so that was good and finally made it back and still, you know, working through this moving process as we were just discussing. So pr- pretty busy these days. What uh, So I guess we'll start, we'll go to but dispatches of both games you went to. We'll start with the LSU game, which I guess a trigger warning to that one guy on the board that just broke his <laughs> brain that realized you grew up in Louisiana, went to LSU games, who now has that like one quip on the pod or on the board that's just like LSU phantom. He's like that kid in the sandbox when you're seven that can only say one word, but it's like, you know, <laughs> he can supposedly drive and vote. Um, you went back. How was it? The uh, Was the crowd shaming warranted? Was it bad? Like what, what was it as bad as advertised? What, what was the scene? It's really hard. I, I mean, it was not a good crowd. No. Okay. I mean, we were sitting uh, in my fiance's tickets so we're on the LSU side. And when you're looking over to the Tennessee side, um, I mean, it, it just was not full. I would call it 75 to 80% full. And yeah, you know, it, the Badgers traffic is terrible. So it filled up more towards the first quarter. But then, I mean, by the time it was halftime and you know, the game was not necessarily out of reach, but it, it was definitely a, a kind of a blitz by Tennessee early. Uh, it was not overly impressive. It was not overly loud. And I know a little credit to Tennessee for kind of completely taking the fans out of the game. But, I mean, to be honest, over the years, just LSU, you know, it, it's still Death Valley. It's still Tiger Stadium. It's still truly incredible every time I walk in. I mean, it, it's a great stadium and almost always a great atmosphere. But it's definitely not, you know, your dad's Tiger Stadium, per se. It, it, it has the, the attendance there for, I mean, even for the Mississippi State game earlier in the year, which was a 5 o'clock kick, which is as close to night as they've gotten this year, which is a little odd. It wasn't full of it. it it's been very lackluster for them, and I know that's obviously a topic we've covered here. Uh, but it, it was it's, it's been kind of weird to see over the years, even before COVID. Um, it kind of just not exactly being the same as it used to be growing up. You kind of answered my next question. So I'll rephrase it like a different way is, you know, we talked about this on the pod. You very smartly put last week talking about the attendance issue is like, Oh, Miss's issue is unique, even though it's not an issue unique to Ole Miss, like their attendance deal, you know, people discussed it ad nauseum. We already covered it, but with the tiger stadium thing, is that mostly like you may sound like it wasn't necessarily an 11 AM thing, but I do want to start there. Like, what, what? Why do they act like it's a crime against humanity to play an 11 a.m. game? I mean, my God, you had like a statement from the – I don't know if it's the AD or a media relations guy. Like, look, I get it. Tiger Stadium at night, it's the mystique. I get that they used to get a lot of night games. But, I mean, they're not immune to playing 11 a.m. games. You would have thought someone that walked in there and just stabbed Scott Woodward in the chest and was like, <laughs> deal with it. I just that, – that seems a little nauseating. Like, I, they're not immune from 11 a.m. kickoffs. Like, deal with it. Who, who, who cares? Right. I mean, I, I completely agree the 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 whining from a lot of the media and even some of the administrators is a little obnoxious. Uh, I mean, you're not no one is immune from 11 a.m. games anymore. And that does include LSU. Um, now, the, the difference, I would say, is, you know, LSU as a brand over the, you know, since Saban and everybody. They, they've they've earned the ability to lobby for night games. I mean, sure. that, I think that is at least fair to say. Um, I do think in this new era, I mean, you kind of have to reestablish yourself as worthy of that. And, you know, they have been a really bad football team for two years. Um, and, you know, they, they got stuck with this one. I, I do believe, and, you know, 
that they got the 11 a.m. game because they're LSU and it was Tennessee. I think Neil mentioned that CBS does not pick first and second. When they do the double headers, they pick first and third. I do not know if that's true. It has been really difficult trying to figure out exactly how the order goes because I was telling people that LSU Tennessee was 11 a.m. because CBS gets the first pick. And then ESPN doesn't have that night game anymore, so they picked their second-best game or their first-best game, which was LSU-Tennessee by far. Um, I could be incorrect on that, and there was LSU people saying that was wrong that I was listening to, like, kind of radio throughout the week and stuff. I don't know. Long story short, no. No one gets to bitch and complain about 11 a.m. games anymore. Uh, no one is immune to it. Even Alabama, I mean, they, they've kind of earned their 230 slot as well. So – uh, it's, a, it's a little obnoxious, but then at the same time, you know, like you see this week, they're playing Florida at uh, what you call it at six o'clock. And those aren't two great teams by any means. But guess what? It's still LSU, Florida. Same thing with Ole Miss and Kentucky. I think ESPN chose the 11 a.m. because they needed a really good game at 11 a.m. They got it. But at the end of the day, it's also the fact that it was LSU Auburn. Like they're, they're probably going to get the six, you know, if it comes down to a coin flip. Uh, so it's it's really difficult to decipher exactly what they're thinking, whether they pick the brand games at night or they pick the good games at night or they, you know, or vice versa at 11 a.m. So it, it doesn't really matter. The, the LSU attendance thing, like you mentioned earlier, um, I don't think it's the same. I, mean, I don't think they have the same unique issue as Ole Miss does, talking about just the population demographics of getting to Tiger Stadium. Um, I think it's more of a um, – their issue is more the issue you're seeing around the country, you know, especially the 11 a.m. game. Um, getting into Baton Rouge, as many people know, is a fucking nightmare. Really? You know, I mean, there's one bridge, and then once you're in the city, it's a shit show of traffic. And I can imagine, you know, people making that business decision. Man, I could go sit in Tiger Stadium at 80, you know, 90 degrees at 11 a.m. and watch a good game, or I could sit my ass on my couch and do the same exact thing. It's nothing unique for them. It's no issue for them any more than it is an issue for other teams. But it, it was a little jarring to have a top 10 team in Tiger Stadium at 11 a.m. and just not be close to full. And credit to freaking Tennessee. Holy shit, they brought a lot of fans. I mean, I saw that. It was, it was really, really, really impressive. I think I've only seen two games recently, Georgia in 2018 brought the most visitors, like visiting away fans to Tiger Stadium I've seen in my entire life. I have truly never seen anything like it. Those guys are just a, a bunch of, you know, rich Eastover Atlanta people that can just, you know, pay the $1,000 StubHub fee or whatever. I mean, it was, it was unlike anything I've ever seen. They did the same thing at Notre Dame. But Tennessee was – I mean, the entire Tennessee sideline, the top deck was completely orange. It was very impressive. So, ass beating of a game, but attendance is whatever. We'll get to the actual game on the back half of the pot. I do want to pivot to the Ole Miss piece of it first, yeah. but I will say before we get to that, the you mentioned like the the sitting on the couch, people having to fight that. I was on the, uh, I felt the pulls of that uh, of that uh, weight conflict, whatever you want to call it, this weekend. Granted, there was no game in Oxford, but I didn't do anything this weekend. I needed to get some stuff done around the house and. Um, there was no one I really knew in town. I literally sat on the couch for nine hours on Saturday by myself, ordered a pizza 
and watch football on three different screens. And honest to God, I think I had the most fun I've had in like five weeks. Oh, it's incredible. It's my favorite. I totally I, I love, maybe I'm just getting yeah. old. I loved it. I, I, I absolutely loved it. I woke up. I didn't feel terrible the next day after a night of going out. And I was like, let's do this again on Sunday. I, I felt like more informed because I got to watch a bunch of full games on TV. It was Again, maybe I'm just getting older. I don't really know. But I was like, this is my idea of paradise. Don't get me wrong. It would have been nice to have three or four buddies doing the same. But it did beat the hell out of, you know, going to rafters at 2 and then trying to figure out how to get home at, you know, 1 a.m. And, like, that whole deal. I just – I very much enjoyed sitting on my couch watching TV all day. And I honestly was just like, I'm in paradise. I I thought about shutting off my phone. Um, It was just amazing. So I, I, I told no, I told Elizabeth this week, and I was like, "Look, I don't know what plans you have for us in Houston, but don't include me because I've got, <laughs> I've got Auburn at eleven. I've got Bama, Tennessee at two thirty. I, I have not seen any great night games on Saturday night. It's kind of a really weird slate. And then on Sunday, I said, "Don't include me again." I've got Saints, uh, Bengals at eleven. I've got the game of the year, Chiefs Bills at two thirty. And then I've got, you know, the OG NFC East, Dallas Eagles potential NFC championship matchup at uh, at night. And then, of course, House of the Dragon after that. So I will be on my couch from potentially 1030 Saturday to 1030 Sunday night. And I cannot wait. It's, it's an amazing feeling, it's honestly. <laughs> it's, it's If I could do I'm, – I'm not good at a whole lot, but I could do some nothing. I'm very good at doing nothing if well, that was a sport. Personal favorite of mine. Yeah, I'd be a one seed. I don't know who else fills out a bracket on that one. Ole Miss had a 3 p.m. game kick. It might as well have been 11 a.m. from the atmosphere. Um, I thought Vanderbilt might have to go silent count there for a bit. Not exactly a raucous environment. We won't do like the normal game recap just because it's a midweek where everyone's kind of past that. But I do want to get your thoughts on like how the game went. Ole Miss started really slow, but, um, you know, I thought it was pretty apt. Kiffin at half in his halftime interview described their first half performance in short as screwing around. And then they went out and really just imposed their will on the game in the third quarter. Vanderbilt gained like 31 yards on 16 plays. Ole Miss blitzed them 21 nothing in the quarter. Could have been 28 nothing if not for another dart pick, but. They really took over that game, and I actually just put out a column that I was supposed to put out yesterday, but life happened about how, yeah, Ole Miss shouldn't get lauded for beating Vanderbilt, but I do think there's a positive to take away for a team that has not been tested very much because of how the schedule shook out. There's been a lot of decent to good Ole Miss teams that have gone to Vanderbilt and won lost games, but two, would have gotten down 10 points, and for the next 35 minutes, that game would have gotten super weird and they'd have been lucky to escape with the skin of their teeth. And Ole Miss really just kind of decided enough in the second half. They went to a four-man front and imposed their will in that game. And again, it sounds weird. It sounds, you know, homerish to pump them up after beating a Vanderbilt team while improved is not a good football team. But I do think it's somewhat significant that they really just put their foot down and turned the game into a farce in the matter of a quarter. That's kind of the DNA of a decent football team. And that was kind of my macro takeaway from the game. No, I mean, you could see this game, the beginning of it, coming from 10,000 miles away. I mean, you, you played your biggest game of the year so far in a, a dramatic fashion. Vanderbilt – and then you have to go to Nashville at, like, the dump-off game at 3 o'clock to a sleepy environment against Vanderbilt off a of bye with a week to prepare. I mean, this was, like, the most – let down of let down spots you can imagine for really any team. And they sure as hell showed that in the first half. I mean, they're down 10 with 90 seconds left in the first half. No, it was, yeah, not good at all. I mean, I wasn't 
really didn't think they were going to lose, but I was getting like a little bit on the edge of my seat when it was 20 to 10, like, oh boy, like this is, you know, going to be a grind out. Like this is so typical, <laughs> like blah, 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 being the classic pessimist that I am. Um, but they responded. I, I do think there are positives to take from that. I mean, you've got a, a basically true freshman quarterback that's going to have to like really bring his team together. And I thought, you know, of course he made his, you know, two terrible mistakes. But besides that, really took what the defense gave him. I thought the offensive line played well. They just responded in the second half and did what they were supposed to do at the beginning. Um, I think going forward, your biggest concern on this team is they really have not played a full game yet, uh, a full quality game yet. And, you know, maybe they won't. Maybe this is just a team that, you know, is kind of hit or miss drive by drive on both sides of the ball. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely positives to take away from it. You know, there's some, some negatives, obviously with the first half, obviously with some of the injury stuff that I'm sure we'll get to. Uh, but at the end of the day, you kind of did what you needed to do to win a kind of a weird game. And that's, you know, that's all that really matters at this point. It really is, particularly with the way the league is. And another piece of it that I thought was interesting about this game is that Ole Miss goes to a four-man front after halftime. Vanderbilt had I don't know if you call it gashing, but I mean, Vanderbilt did have 79 rush yards in the first half. They played, I thought Vanderbilt played really good football in the first half. I thought depth caught up to him and then just a bad team making bad mistakes. But, you know, that was something last year. Ole Miss went to the 3 2 6. We talked about it a lot. It was out of necessity, right? They had a lot of athleticism in the secondary, some guys that were really good around the football and not enough depth on the offense, or excuse me, the defensive line. Pretty good linebacking play, but I wouldn't call them deep. Point is, they were kind of stuck to that mold because that's what they did best. Whereas they have more defensive line depth this year and they have the ability to be more multiple. And I don't pretend to be some sort of schematic savant, but having the ability to make adjustments like that and give different looks is something they didn't have last year. And it can't be a bad thing. I mean, it, it helped them win that game. I, I just, I think that's a testament to the depth that they created. And that's a small thing that maybe might not go noticed in the moment, but that's another level they've reached or another element in their playbook that they didn't have a year before that's probably going to come in handy down the road because, you know, they haven't been great being on the interior, particularly against the run. They can now go to a four-man front, and that has to help some. I just thought that was something that stuck out to me that they didn't have the ability to do last year, that they utilized to their advantage this time, and that's important. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, you got to give credit to Partridge and that crew and Joiner for, you know, kind of developing the depth and, and building the team the way they have it where they can make an adjustment like that. Um, and also the fact that they know to make the adjustment like that. I mean, sure. there are teams that just, you know, cannot do it. I mean, I'm sure Oklahoma begged and, and wished they could make some sort of adjustment on Saturday, but didn't have it or couldn't do it. Oh, excuse me. So credit to them. Um, I mean, they played so much better in the second half. They, I mean, the running the ball was the only thing Vanderbilt could really do super effectively, though I was pretty impressed with the true freshman QB they had. Um, but they were just going to make him beat them. And then once the game settled down, once they got a few three and outs, Vanderbilt forced themselves into mistakes. The next thing you know, you're up, you know, 28 points. So it really was as simple as that. But that's what good teams do is they adjust. They see what happens. You know, there's not a whole lot of time in the locker room to make, you know, dramatic changes. But if you just make a slight one, you know, one they've clearly put in, for a situation like this to, to kind of counteract, you know, just getting overloaded in the run game. And, you know, they did it and they executed it really, really well, despite still having a pretty, 
pretty bad tackling day overall. The dart thing is interesting to me because he threw, you know, for all the times we've talked about to this point, pretty much every game, we're like, hey, the stat line doesn't tell the total story. He's actually pretty good. I didn't think he was bad in this game, but, you know, the 448 yards or whatever wasn't necessarily indicative of how he played either. Sure. I'd like to focus in on the – the I, can I call it the pooping on the carpet moment? I mean, I, I, I dropped that analogy on Chase about Kiffin talking first, about first pick. Yeah, just him talking about him in a similar, like, voice that he talks about, like, I don't know, if Juice peed on his – like, off his carpet. He's like, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. after that A&M – or, excuse me, the Georgia Tech game, he's like, yeah, he did it again. We told him he couldn't do it again, but he did it. Well, it happened again, and it happened in an inopportune time. What do you think that is? Because we focused on a lot of the good with Dart, and there's still a ton good there. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But I'm just curious, like, it's not even just, oh, what did you see there? That's a really terrible read. It's it's a lot more of why in God's name would you throw that football? And what would, to me was ironic about the play he threw the interception on, he looked seemingly to the right, kind of pump faked it, seemingly stopped to for, like stopped himself from forcing a throw looked to the middle kind of did the same thing and then he scrambles to the left and I'm thinking okay he's either going to throw it away or run and turn it into some kind of net positive and then all of a sudden just slings it and it's like I used like a more R-rated example of texting a buddy about this this weekend I won't bring drugs onto this podcast but it's almost like your buddy who just can't help himself you're like oh you know this guy's back in town I've heard he's really gotten his you know gotten his shit together like you know he's on the up and up and then you know he orders whatever drink that you know he's not supposed to order at the bar and all of a sudden you're probably paying for a hole in your drywall because that's just kind of what happens it's like he can't help himself what do you think that is because again it's not him just like like swimming and not being able to see stuff or the game's too fast for him it's just one of those things like why are you throwing this it, it's 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 kind of mind-boggling it's unexplainable. So I, I actually missed the first interception. I just saw it on Twitter as I was leaving, leaving the LSU game. Um, and I finally went back and watched the full game. I think it was yesterday. And I was just like, holy shit. Like, what the fuck was he like, why on this throw? Like, why? What? It was like first down, I think. It was the first play of the series. It was the first play of the drive. They were down 10 he had like room to run. I mean, I don't know if receivers clearly weren't open. It was just an unexplainable decision on his part. The second one was a little different. And I think this is, it's not really the same as this, both bad, but that one was just unexplainable. I mean, how Kiffin uses, you know, PG rated language on the sideline with him. I mean, there's no chance. I mean, he has got to be dog cussing him because that is what's keeping you from being a great offense and a great team is these like boneheaded, just like asinine decisions that he's made over and over again. And I think, honestly, he, he showed exactly what you want to see. The guy that has a live arm can throw the deep ball, is making better decisions in the run game, you know, keeping it and, you know, taking the shots when he needs to. It, it It's fitting the ball in when he doesn't need to, that's just killing them. And it's what we've heard was the main issue all spring. And he has just not been able to kick it. And it just, it pains me so much because I can just see it yeah. when this, when this decision is going to cost them a game and it's, it's, it's fucking coming. And it, we're all seeing it from, you know, this 10,000 foot view and he just needs to see it on the field that they have the they have a defense that can stop people. They need they do not have to force anything on offense. So just throw the ball away, play to the next the next down, even if you have to freaking punt it. It's okay. 
And I don't know if they have to change his mindset just a little bit or, you know, you know, kind of explain their thought process on how they want him to operate this offense differently, but it, it's coming. It, there is going to be a backbreaker and it, these decisions just cannot continue if they want to achieve the goals that I believe Kiffin thinks that they can. And where they want, like, where it comes from is a fascinating, like, th- thought exercise to me because, you know, he was in a situation at USC last year where he just kind of had free reign to do whatever. I don't know. I, I guess I shouldn't say that because I don't know that for sure. But it was a terrible situation. He played part of the year with Drake London and some good offensive talent. The point being, he was just kind of in, you know, screw it mode the entire time. Let's just go make something happen. Interim coach disaster situation. Just go do it. I don't know if it's a generation of growing up watching Patrick Mahomes. I just don't get it because, you know, you mentioned like fitting it in there. Half the time it's not even fitting it in there. It seems like he's just playing jackpot. Like that game we used to play. It literally was a jackpot throw. Like, oh, let's see if our guy is going to catch it out of these four players. Yeah, we have two of the four there. Let's just see what happens. In that case, I think they only had one of the four. But, like, yeah, I, I just – it's it really is mind-numbing and, and, and hard to kind of wrap your mind around because there is so much good with them. And I, I wonder if part of it is, is if they're hesitant to some degree to completely dial back his mindset because – he part of his game is making plays outside of structure, right? You know, he's made some good throws on the run. Now, not necessarily the type of throws that we're talking about here, but extended plays and extended drives with his feet. And sometimes, you know, scrambled outside the pocket a little bit, kept the play alive and found a receiver. And that's a big part of what he does. And I wonder if they're somewhat hesitant to completely change him like that, but for the short term, they might just have to because they don't necessarily really need that. What they can't have happen is exactly what happened against Vanderbilt and just it's so fascinating to me because it'd be one thing, it'd be boring podcast fodder to just talk about, well, what he doesn't see and sees and just, you know, pretend like we know what we're talking about on like a read, read by read basis or whatever, but it really is sure. just it's self-destruction in a split second. And it's like you said, you can just see it coming down the pipe. If he continues to do it, it is going to cost them a football game. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, it got down 10. I didn't necessarily think Ole Miss was going to lose, but the thing that worried like would worry me if I were old missing that scenario. You have 90 seconds left in the half and credit to them. He made a great throw to Mingo. I believe down the middle, they scored important touchdown for halftime, but with 90 seconds left, you're about to go run a two minute drill. What the part that I thought Ole Miss was really walking in shaky waters to me was the fact that you're one more of those decisions away to potentially go down 17 at halftime. And then even if you flip the switch, that's a long, long, long climb out of the hole. And that's the part to me that made it shaky. And I'm just, you know, I guess we'll never really know the answer, but I'm curious just to see how, if at all, that's mitigated at all, because it's it, it's certainly going to cost them. And it's 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 a fascinating like thought exercise and dynamic because it just it doesn't make a ton of sense for a kid who's wildly talented. So I guess we'll see. I think they could get away with it again this week because Auburn doesn't really have a quarterback. They seem like they wish their season was over. But man, I mean, can't you see them up 14 to 10 for most of the game in Baton Rouge? That happens in the seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter and then all of a sudden place will, that place will eat you alive it's like they, they mississippi state it it's like oh Ole miss was better than for three and a half quarters but it doesn't matter because that happened and that that would be my one caution with as much as this team has as at stake it's it's fascinating but there was a lot of good he made some good throws jonathan mingo which is where i kind of want to go to next really broke out in that game i get it he caught all the receiving records i don't really care to go look that up in the game notes kid was awesome nine catches 247 had a couple really huge plays one of the things i wanted to ask you about is i listened to kiffin's monday press conference and he got asked a question about which what it's like dealing with jonathan mingo on a daily basis and he gave an interesting answer about how 
you know, you know, we get into a team meeting when you first take over a program, you ask kids if they love football. Of course, everyone's hands raised. Uh, <laughs> but of course, that's not true. Like they're, they're just guys that are work ethic doesn't show that. Whereas he was like, Mingo actually really loves this stuff, the way he prepares, the way he works every day. And then what was interesting, five minutes after that, the next guy coming in, Jordan Watkins, got asked kind of a joke question about did Mingo steal your thunder? And he was like, hell no, that guy's such a hard worker, honest to God. I'm just happy every time something good happens to him. You were in the recruitment process with him. Was that kind of the MO? He seems like a kid that really – I mean, inspires people, sounds a little Pollyanna, but really does have an effect on people with the way he works and how dedicated he is to football. Because the last piece before I kind of let you take it away here is the fact that Kiffin mentioned he never complains about touches or how often he's targeted. And I know it's not pro football, but you get that with college kids all the time. He was a highly rated recruit, but I thought it was interesting. Kiffin took it out of his way to mention that kid never says anything. He just shows up and loves to play. He almost cried when he like, clearly couldn't go against Alabama, but suited up and tried. It just seems like one of those things where he really loves football and that rubs off on the people around him. Yeah. He, he's an interesting kid because he really is quiet. He, he's not a loud, you know, boisterous personality. I, maybe that's changed. Maybe he's taken on more of a leadership role. Um, but I always really loved him as a recruit. Um, not only just because, I thought he was incredibly talented and, and kind of a different build, uh, a tough build to find receivers, which is big, physical, and can run. Um, you know, struggled with some drops, but is really, you know, it's just a, a credit to his work ethic has really eliminated those that kind of plagued him early in his career. And it's awesome to see. I mean, he was a guy that we almost thought could play safety, um, but gave him the opportunity at, at wide receiver first. And I mean, that was really what we thought you know, could be a situation, but he came in and was just really from day one was like, yeah, this kid's built differently from the way he worked, you know, physically, how he was built, um, you know, just a freshman that were like, yeah, this guy's going to play a lot. He's going to play early. Um, and it's kind of one of those things we've mentioned, you kind of first few practices, it doesn't take long to figure out whether you hit or miss on the guy. We're like, yeah, we definitely hit on this guy. I mean, he's going to be a player. And it's taken some growing pains. I mean, he's had some really great games in his career, really great moments, had some injury issues, but I think it's all kind of culminated to this season. And it's kind of why, you know, it's a little small blessing in disguise. He got hurt last year that he's, that he's even back. And I think uh, he's really, you know, kind of going up some, some draft boards here recently. Um, I don't know what I would think he would be as, as a pro prospect at this point. I mean, he's definitely getting drafted, um, probably a top four round guy. I think he's got the ability to go even higher. Uh, but going back to your, you know, kind of loving of the game and recruiting and all that, it, it's really difficult to pin down, you know, whether a kid really loves football and how much he really loves football. I mean, there's different ways of going about it. I mean, one is watching a full game cut up and, you know, seeing effort, seeing how he plays <laughs> when things don't go right. If you're a receiver that blocks, you know, the shit out of people in high school, you know, that's a guy who's going to continue to do that. He's not going to lose that ability or that mindset when he gets to college. Um, one of my favorite things to do is react to how, you know, how do they react when someone throws an interception? You know, are, are you a receiver that goes and tries to run the guy down and make the tackle? Or are you a guy that kind of stands there and watches it happen? Um, and then, of course, just meeting the kids and being around the kids, being around the family members and seeing, 
you know, how they talk football, how are they in meetings, you know, when they come and visit, they're in uh, positional meetings with coaches, are they taking notes? Do they really give a shit, you know, or are they kind of there just to, you know, be there and take the pictures and all that stuff that everyone loves to complain about, semi-rightfully so. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, football character is an, a huge important part, a hugely important part of the evaluation process. I think the NFL, you just have so many more data points for these guys. You have so many more people to talk to, plus four years of playing, you know, semi-professional football, I guess we could say. Um, in high school, it's different. I mean, guys transfer to different schools. Guys are playing out of position. Guys are poorly coached or poorly trained. Um, and it's, you just have to find different ways to feel or figure out what their football character is, what their competitive character is. And Mingo, I mean, really from day one was like, yeah, you know, I want the number one. I want to be the, Mississippi, the next Mississippi receiver. I'm going to work like A.J. Brown and D.K. Metcalf. And most importantly, work like Elijah Moore. I mean, Elijah Moore – is gets the hype he deserves at Ole Miss and is slowly but surely building that, you know, that reputation in the NFL. But every single scout who came through and talked to Elijah and talked to coaches, the only word you ever heard was this kid's a professional. It's like, is he going to be an elite NFL player? I mean, he's got the elite traits, but he is a little small. But, like, everything else about him, work ethic, just professionalism, like, this guy is a pro. He's just playing in college and that like Mingo was around him plenty and has got uh, the ability to kind of see like, okay, this is what a pro does. This is what a pro does after practice. This is what a pro does before practice, during practice, during games. And he's taken that, you know, kind of to the next step, which is I'm not really surprised he's having such a breakout year or at least a breakout game. AJ and DK were like that too. They just had it. You could tell. Um, I, I mean, this sounds like a dumb thing, but different, different though, very, yeah. very different because AJ and DK, you know, they they had a, a little bit more prima donna in them than 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 Elijah. They were so far physically advanced compared to like anybody on those practice fields that it was like, yeah, they worked their freaking asses off. But practice wise, you know, they, they took their they took their breaks, you know, oh, my hammy is a little tight, you know, yeah. it, it didn't really matter. But Elijah was like completely different from a practice player. I mean, he was beating everyone's ass every single day and not that AJ and DK weren't, but AJ and DK, I mean, you can see like those guys had a little bit of an attitude. Elijah, there was no attitude with that guy. I mean, he once Kiffin came in, you know, even with you know, in the former staff, like he was incredible. He was great. Um, I, but I think the flip completely switched once he realized the opportunity he had with Levy and Kiffin, just they were going to feed me the ball. I'm going to have to be the player for this team. I'm, I'm going to show why I'm that guy. Yeah. And just like the acting like a pro part, like, yeah, it, was, it sounds dumb, but it's like a small thing. Like AJ, AJ would always come out to interviews and a lot of the time he'd be like nicely dressed with like a gold watch on. And I got, I, I know that sounds silly, but it's like, damn, no, it's, no, it's not in a professional it's really locker not. room. Like, you know, talking to this guy, like he just, you know, earned his paycheck that day and he's talking to the media after, cause it's in the CBA that he has to type of thing. Like it just, well, he probably did earn his paycheck that day. Yes, know. he probably did, but it had, it just felt like he just felt like a professional vibe to it. And I kind of know what you're getting at. And it's, Kind of taking it back to like Mingo and Ole Miss, that's a game changer for Ole Miss. We talked about the passing game 
you know, the new receivers, we thought they had more SEC caliber receivers, though I don't know how much better they'd be. It hasn't been, you know, a work of art at times in the passing game, but you're coming off a game where Jonathan Mingo, excuse me, Malik Heath had a 100-yard game against Kentucky in a game they really needed. Jonathan Mingo goes nuts in the second half against Vanderbilt. You know, long way to go, smaller sample size, but just the fact that they have two guys capable of that, I think really changes um, changes what this team can be offensively because it, the sheer fact that they have two dudes capable of it, and they kind of showed flashes of dominance. Granted, against Tulsa, against Georgia Tech, we'll see kind of how it goes down the stretch, but they did show flashes of, you know, beating people on the outside and having a little bit of an edge and dominance there. And Ole Miss surely didn't have that last year, like, you know, with particularly Mingo got, or, you know, Drummond was very effective at what they asked him to do and what he did. But them having that element of both those guys be two, become two really consistent receivers on the edge, I don't know what this team can't do offensively beyond the quarterback, as we covered earlier, you know, making terrible decisions. But there really is no ceiling or limitations, I feel like, if those two guys become what they've shown, you know, little bits and pieces of becoming. Right. And this, of course, assuming they all stay healthy, which is, yeah, that is also true. Mass- you're a couple injuries away from being in trouble. Right. From being in trouble. Um, I think you're seeing Kiffin also really begin to trust Jordan Watkins. Um, you can tell because they are playing in different formations with him and putting him in the backfield. I mean, they're giving him handoffs. They're, you know, running angle routes with him for that long touchdown. You know, he, he's really providing kind of a different kind of spark to this receiver core that, I was a little concerned, you know, he had the ability to do early, but I've been really impressed with what he's been able to show uh, in the past few games. And yeah, I mean, Heath and, and Mingo were kind of known quantities to an extent, but I think they're even outplaying some of our expectations. Uh, I do think depth is obviously a concern. Uh, they clearly do not trust like a lot of these young guys. I mean, JJ Henry's getting some run. Um they don't trust Robinson yet. I know some of that may They don't trust him yet. He must be in the doghouse. He played a little bit, and that was encouraging to see. Um, the ghost of Jalen Knox is, you know, is still – Has someone done a wellness check? Is he still with us? <laughs> He's still alive. I mean, I, I, who knows? I don't know. I don't even know if he was on, like, the, the travel roster. So, I'm just going to assume he doesn't exist, though we saw him at some media event, and he was yoked. But I, he, he's, he's a ghost completely. But – some of these younger guys, you know, Barry and Brown, he's a no-show. And Buck Halter, he's been a no-show. And, you know, Larry Simmons and uh, my other guy, Jeremiah Dillon, you know, th- those are freshmen. You shouldn't necessarily expect them to contribute immediately. But um, the, the first rotation guys have been really, really impressive. And guess what? They're going to be a lot more impressive now that, you know, your receiving threat at tight end is, is gone for – the foreseeable future, at least. No one seems to really know, but uh, they're going to have to continue to step up. I don't know if I'd count on getting uh, Trigg back unless they go into a you know January bowl game or make a pretty deep run from what it sounds like. That's really what I wanted to get to next, so perfect segue there. Trigg was <laughs> – Yeah, I, we, we now just got this chemistry down two years in. He was swimming, as we described it, treading water – um, you know, even when he was healthy and I don't know how close it was to coming together. I really have no clue. I don't think it, there's any really way to know, but that athleticism and that potential and that threat is gone now over the middle of the field. Um, I don't know how much it changes the calculus with this offense, because again, it wasn't that consistently there when he was healthy. 
I, I mean, this is a bad question, but like how big of a loss do you think it is? How do you put that into terms? Like I kind of think, oh, okay, it's survivable, but you know, you're now with, you know, the younger brother of Swag Kelly and Kyron Heath. Like that's not necessarily comforting. And it's, it's maybe what they could have been as opposed to what they lost already, because Kiffin does like to use the tight end when they have one. And he feels like he has one they can trust. And we haven't really seen that yet outside of five games of Kenny Yaboa. Shout out to that guy. We'll always remember that little brief moment in time. Yeah. But it, it, it's just an element that's just no longer there anymore. And I just, I'm curious how big of a loss you think mm-hmm. it is. I think it's certainly survivable, but it is kind of a bummer for a, uh, you know, receiving core that still you know needs every soldier on the front line for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a pretty big loss. I mean, it's in so such typical fashion. I mean, he probably makes his best play of the season. I mean, that was an absolute snag um, on that seam route and then breaks his clavicle or whatever the hell he did. Um, you know, <clears throat> not a great blocker, but, you know, not completely ineffective and in that they do use the tight ends, especially for some of those counters they run. So, you know, you're down to really – my guess is two guys, which is Heath, a true freshman, and Kelly, who is, you know, serviceable at the position, but not really the upside guy at all that Trigg was. Um, so, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, just from a depth standpoint, it's obviously a pretty big hit at a position they like to, you know, not necessarily focus in this offense, but definitely utilize, you know, in certain spots and in certain instances. Um, I'm a little bit more bullish Though Casey, he is a Kelly, so you know, kind of a kind of a you know, you know what I mean by that. I do. Um, he is he is a capable pass catcher. Um, he he has proven it. You know, he's not dynamic, but he can. You know, he can catch the ball. He he really does have actually pretty soft hands. Um, and he's just he's a decent blocker. You know, none of the three were really expert blockers, but you don't really necessarily have to be one. They're not asking you to be in you know, full pass pro at all times, you know, double teaming DNs. It's just really getting in the way and, and using your body. But um, just the upside of Trig and the, the continued growth for him in this offense and on this team is what, you know, is concerning about the loss. And also, I mean, you just don't know the kid's mindset. You know, talk about Mingo being such a pro and such a hard worker. I mean, what, what's this kid's mindset after this injury? Does, does he does he kind of lose his football kind of, I don't want to say passion, but you never know what kind of kid you're going to get back. You never know. I mean, the transfer. Injuries are hard. Doing the same shit every day is hard to get back on the field. That's a process in its own right. Doing what you're supposed to do. Incredibly difficult. I mean, like, it's obviously not the same, but like I tore my ACL one time and I went back and played football the next year and like could not focus on playing football for an entire year. I mean, it was so miserable. I am not a college athlete. I am not Michael Trigg. But kids handle these injuries completely differently. And that's like, I guess the most concerning thing is that he kind of got hurt his freshman year at, at, at USC. And it, it took him time to learn this stuff here at Ole Miss. And now he's not going to have those reps and he's hurt again. Like it, it's tough on the psyche. And that's kind of my biggest concern for him because I think the upside is is well known and the ability he has is well known. It's just like, what's his mindset going to be coming back? And, you know, hopefully he is back which, uh, I mean, I anticipate, but you shit, you never know this is. That's a side of the things that people don't see. I, I, I would say over the years, you'd be shocked at how many athletes that Ole Miss, and it's not just football players, have told me how bad, like, 
mentally they got down when they had a long-term injury. You'd be surprised right. at the amount of kids that told me they were on the verge of tears most days. Cause you think about it as fans, they're outside the spotlight. You think they're just on the sideline doing the rehab or whatever, but man, waking up at 6am to go get treatment every single day when you're six and a half months into it with no light at the end of the tunnel is really, really hard. Cause these kids thrive on like the high that comes with being in the spotlight and getting to play. I mean, that's the reward for the work they put in. And when you're just kind of a, lost cause is the wrong way to say it just out of the spotlight yeah. the afterthought doing it, what you need to do and staying the course is a lot harder than people think and it wears on you mentally as much physically and with trig that was already kind of swimming when he was healthy i do wonder on that side you brought up a decent point where you said um you know i figured it's basically two guys i'm glad you went there because i actually looked at the tight end roster I don't know if you want to call this nepotism you because actually you have Trace Campbell as a tight end as well. Kids got a sick mullet. So just brothers of former Ole Miss players up and down the tight end list. Um, outside of that, you got a kid named Landon Thomason. He went to some school called Vandegrift in uh, uh, Austin. You have a kid named Matt Ware from a Christian Academy in Little Rock. Imagine his father cut a check. You have Jonathan sure. Hess. And then you have the mystique of Hudson Wolf, the freak athlete that just seems like his medicals aren't great. And I don't know, I don't know where he is. I don't know what the deal is with him. I'm not going to pretend to try to find out. The point is, it is two guys like that. It is. And yeah. I believe is, uh, is he not a true freshman? Because I believe I saw him at Mansfield Legacy last year without actually knowing it. Uh, I covered a Mansfield Legacy game and had no idea he was out there. Yeah, no, he's a true freshman. Yeah, I think we talked about when you were covering that game, like, oh, yeah, there's an old Miss kid on that team. <laughs> it's amazing going up and down Texas high school football rosters and being like, oh, this kid's going here. This It's, it's unbelievable. But, yeah, that, that doesn't seem like hard to like, easy to count on. It, it seems like it's going to be the uh, Swag Kelly Jr. show, and I'm not really sure how well that's going to go. Kyron Heath is, of course, going to have to play. My point in going through that is I don't think anyone else is probably ever going to see the field. Uh, there, I, I guess I left one out. Apologies to uh, Salathiel Hempel. I, Jones Community College kid? I don't know. Uh, if Salathian Temple scores a touchdown this year, I will get a tattoo. So um, anyway, it's two guys, and I'm curious to see where that goes. The uh, last couple of things I wanted to get to game-wise before we kind of bounce around. One, the tackling. It's been an issue at the second level for a couple games. It hasn't been bad all the time. There's just been stretches and spots where it's like, oh, this doesn't look very great. What do you attribute that to? Because there's a larger conversation to be had about teaching tackling because of the limited contact and practices these days. Ole Miss has been really, you know, one of the changes with the new regime uh, since they've gotten here is one, they're faster, they're more athletic, and they populate the football much better. And for the most part, they're pretty damn good at tackling in space. And I think you could still say that at large about them, but there's been moments where it hasn't been great. Is that a, is that like a focus thing? Kind of like going in to play Vanderbilt in a dead environment? Where does bad tackling stretches come from in your mind? In my opinion, it's all for this game. And I think you saw it's all, it's all focus. It's all, it's all motivation, you know, when you're not focused, you're taking bad angles. When you take bad angles, you're in bad position to make tackles, and then you miss them, or you're not, you know, bring it all out. Because I thought that against Kentucky, I mean, for 95% of that game, they were they were very good at tackling. You know, Chris Rodriguez is a load, and so is the running back for Vanderbilt. We got to give him credit. You know, he's, he's good. Playing. Ray Davis, very good. Yeah, he's playing too. You know, <laughs> he's not yeah. exactly trying to go down. Um, so yeah, I mean, to me, it's all focus because you've seen this team with the ability to make tackles in space, make tackles in the backfield. And in the second half, I thought they were much better and much more focused and much more, you know, having more attention to detail. So 
I, that's may not be the most technical answer. Yeah, sure. I could go the, you know, 10,000 foot view. Oh, they don't tackle enough in the preseason and not enough pad work, but that that's, that's everybody. So it's not really exactly the same deal. Um, I, I think they're going to be fine. I mean, it's AJ Finley is an incredible, is a very good tackling safety. He missed like three tackles. Like that's more of an anomaly than, you know, than the norm for, for them. So I'm not that worried about it. Um, I will say they better be a lot better against Auburn because Tank Bigsby, though he's averaging like 1.5 yards for carry because their offensive line sucks so badly. I was going to say, I feel like that's not on him. Yeah, you better bring your ass to tackle that motherfucker because he's a real player. and He is tough to bring down. And then Robbie Ashford, you know, though he can't hit the broad side of a barn, is a hell of an athlete. And you better, you know, really gang tackle and use the correct angles on him because he he'll run right by you. Um, so they're going to have to improve that, you know, mentality quickly, but I'm, I am sure that they will. Last note I wanted to get to is, is they started another offensive line combination for the third consecutive game. Uh, Acker didn't start. He played very sparingly in reserve. I want to say his snap count was in the teens. I don't know if that's an injury thing. You know, they had one really bad snap, and then I'm not going to sit here and tell you I focused in on the snap and thought it was good the rest of the game, but I'll tell you, put it to you this way. I didn't notice bad snaps after that. It seemed okay. Um, is that a concern for you at all? Because, you know, we talked about eye test wise, the pass protection hasn't looked great. Um, but then I look it up today and they've allowed the fewest sacks in the sec and like the third fewest in the country, you know, darts only been sacked twice. And I feel like some of that is, you know, his mobility, which is you know, a credit to him in some ways, helping them out, but just the shuffling on the offensive line, what you thought was going to kind of be the bedrock and the strength of the team. Are you concerned with that at all? Because I don't think the fact that they're playing true freshman tackles is very much of an issue i just don't fully un- and maybe it's just the fact that i don't fully understand it the shuffling on the interior part of it was a worn injury against kentucky maybe acker was banged up we'll never really know they'll tell us that i just don't fully get it and so maybe that's why it gives me grounds for pause are you concerned with that at all uh not necessarily concerned i, I think they're just trying to find the right five for every game to give them the, the best chance to win you know i i thought you know we talked about eye test wise i thought early on in the season they you know pass protection protection was an issue you know they're not allowing sacks but they were allowing pressures and they were like you know guys were getting in the backfield um i would say for the last two games they have been you know incredibly good now it's against Kentucky, whose defensive line is is good, but not as good as they usually are. And then Vanderbilt, who, you know, not necessarily a great defensive line, but they they have two or three like pretty damn good athletes on that defensive line. That There's Langham, no depth. that Langham kid, and then the kid from London, the like the six six London freak. Um, those are pretty good players, and I thought they kept them at bay, you know, pretty much completely throughout the game. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, they had one bad snap. I think it was like the second play of the game, actually. Um, and then Dart, you know, picked it up and threw it out of bounds. But besides that, from what I noticed, I, I thought the snaps were quicker and much better throughout the game. I thought the um, kind of the flow and the speed and the quickness they were trying to play with wasn't really hindered by Warren snapping really at all after that, that second one. So that was good to see. Um, I mean, you've got two games coming up with with pretty good defensive lines. You know, Derek Hall, Mississippi kid, is is a problem for Auburn. I don't I don't know their health situation. For all I know, that he's not playing, or the other kid, Exbozo or whatever, is not playing. But um, those will be definitely much more of a test. And then, of course, LSU with Ojalari 
and Roy. I mean, th- those are some big boys inside. And I think they're, if anything, the biggest issue with Ole Miss has been kind of the inside zone run game against against pretty good defensive linemen. They've done, they've done great on the edges and great in screens and, you know, have been much better in pass protection, but they're going to have to improve that interior. And I feel like they're trying to find that interior mix that gives them the best chance to win. I know Warren has been hurt and Acker's in and out and Brooks is in there some and James is in there some, but uh, they'll have to figure that one out. But I think overall, I'm not super concerned about this line. I think they've played up to par, if even a little bit better than I expected. I think, you know, with especially with two, you know, redshirt freshman tackles who I think, I mean, you, you know, it's good about them is you haven't heard a word about their issues. And yeah. as long as you never hear their names or anything, you know, they're doing something right. Um, so that's been really impressive to see. We'll get back to Walden Rodenberg in just a second, but first I wanted to take a quick break to remind you the podcast is brought to you by LB's University Avenue in Oxford. If you're Rippy Wright subscriber, rippywright.substack.com, you should have just gotten an email from me with this week's newsletter. You also get discounted meats. If you go in and show Greg proof of subscription, you get a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's one hell of a way to kickstart your grilling weekend. But then stick around and go find your own favorites at LB's. It is such a treat to have it in Oxford. It's the best butcher shop in the world. You're going to throw something incredible on the grill that you enjoy. Greg hooked me up and some buddies with some filet burgers the other night that were just fantastic and some incredible sausages, all kinds of delicious seafood uh, and different cuts. I like the tri-tip. Go find your own favorites, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Weldon Rodenberg. The uh, last thing they did mention that uh, London kid on the defensive line for Vanderbilt, and I just kind of laughed to myself on the couch. I wonder what that kid was like, oh, I'm playing in the SEC, Vanderbilt. <laughs> Nashville is a nice town. And then, like, imagine, like, they go to Alabama, and it's just like, I don't understand, is, is Man you about to run out? What is the stadium? Like, I imagine, like, can you imagine that kid, like, probably not knowing a ton better and thinking, like, wow, this is kind of awesome. I'm playing at Vanderbilt SEC. This is a nice-ish stadium. And then just go into Neyland. It's like, what is this? Like, well, Yeah, wait, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, you know, I picked Nottingham Forest of, of all of all places. Like, what, what's going on here? That no, guy, I mean, I, I watched their game against Hawaii the first game of the year in week zero. And like he like jumped off the screen. I was like, "Who the fuck is this kid?" So I went to go look him up, and he's like, "This kid is six six two seventy from uh, London, England." I'm like, "Well, like what on earth?" And it's funny because we did kind of do some European scouting here and there. Um, as as oddly enough as it was, like uh, Randy Clement like had some connections in Germany, and they had like, some German offensive tackles we used to look at. And like some of them are like really, you know, look like really like interesting prospects. I know AM actually got this kid, Jordan Moko, who was from Australia. And we would get this film like, okay, this kid's interesting. So it's not like completely unusual to have these international players. I mean, there's been some tight ends that have come about from like, you know, from this from Sweden. I know one kid's going to AM next year from Sweden. And you know, there's some development stuff over there. So it was interesting to see him, but I mean, kids a physical specimen. I like he, I mean was wrecking havoc against maybe the worst team in, in, in all of football in Hawaii. But like I said, they actually did have some players. I mean, just to, I know we don't have to credit Vanderbilt everything, but like I'm a huge fan of Clark Lee. We've talked about I like him. I, I like him a lot. I like his demeanor on the sideline. He's kind of like an NFL coach. Like there is no ups and downs for that guy. He just kind of takes it all in, moves on the next. And they had a great game plan. They are faster at like every single position on the field. And honestly, their offensive line, if they didn't lose the kid to Alabama, would have been a, a pretty decent unit. Um, 
they have no depth. You know, they're not as fast as most SEC teams, even though they're as faster, you know, than they usually are. Uh, but I, I'm really impressed with what they've done so far. I um, mean, we talked about how, you know, really impressive he and the athletic director were after Jimmy Williams passed away, who was, you know, my coach in high school and an SEC legend over at Vanderbilt. And, like, I will be cheering for them at all times. Um, I mean, I didn't cheer for them for one second on Saturday, but they're doing the thing. They're doing some things right over there, and they, he should get as long as he needs to kind of make that happen. I totally concur. So now Ole Miss is playing Auburn, a team that I'm surprised that he uh, that Harson is still the head coach. I did see you know there's that classic you know you get those funny stats floating around Twitter where like I think Auburn lost to Ole Miss in 02 and 08 fired a coach after each time or something like that. I probably have the years wrong. Maybe just this you know simulation we're living in is going to line up and Ole Miss beats them and then they do the uh, fire Harson. But this is a unmotivated. Um, team that's having the season from hell. You could probably see it coming from a mile away. They do have some good players. Ole Miss should not struggle with Auburn per se, but uh, what's the case Auburn hangs around? Dart turns it over a couple of times and they're running the football pretty well. That's the only case I could come up with. Ole Miss should handle them okay to get to 7-0, which that, I mean, you're five games left. I mean, that's, that's as good a shot to do anything you want to as any other th- uh, chance you're going to have. Yeah, I mean, I predicted them to go seven and zero, and then you know lose in Tiger Stadium. Um, I I think they should win this game. The, the case to be made for Auburn is defensively, Ole Miss you know doesn't tackle well. Ashford gets outside, Tank gets outside. Um, you know when Ashford makes plays on the run like he did against LSU, threw a two through two or three balls over the top of the defense because people weren't focused. Um, and then, you know, that, that kind of stuff can help you, you know, on offense, of course, dart, you know, making some of these decisions that he's made that can hurt you not being able to run the ball effectively uh, against, against Auburn uh, can kind of stifle your offense and they can kind of, you know, play press man with some athletes they have on the outside and, you know, Ole Miss has, you know, the receivers, like we said, played well, but not necessarily getting crazy separation against against elite defensive players, though I don't even know if Auburn has those on the outside these days. Um, they should win this game handily. It, it should not be in doubt. If you're a really good football team at home, which they've been an incredibly good football team at home, you beat teams you're supposed to beat. Ole Miss, for some odd reason, unlike anything others, they just do not beat Auburn. They don't do it. Uh, it's, it's like the weird kind of – SEC thing that like some people have like kind of started to talk about um, that I've heard over the radio, like their streaks is just weird, Um, but you should beat them on Saturday. You should beat them handily. And uh, that's what good teams are supposed to do. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this game, but do you feel bad for Robbie Ashford? Because, you know, when he signed, I mean, when he commits to Ole Miss, that was a big deal. He ends up going to Oregon, comes back to Auburn. And I was looking at his game log yesterday and I get that they were down a bunch against Georgia, but it wasn't the case against, um, LSU the last two weeks he's thrown the ball 38 times a game in each game like and that's their third string quarterback like I, I don't under fully understand that it seems like they're putting him in an impossible scenario again the kid already struggled throwing the football and now he's in a terrible situation what was kind of the evaluation on him what do you make of what he's having to do at Auburn because it seems like an unenviable situation yeah I mean they can't run the ball like they literally cannot run the football um you know, that's why I mean, I said, you know, maybe they, they figure it out against Ole Miss, but I think Ole Miss's run defense is decent. 
um, and if if not more than decent. Um, so like he's been forced to like have to throw the ball, have to run around a lot, get his ass kicked. I mean, he he's taken a lot of shots. Uh, do I feel bad for him? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, his, his career has been kind of all over the place early. I mean, in high school, he was, you know, what he is. He's a freak athlete, you know, and we were recruiting for Rich Rod's system, and he was a, you know, couldn't be a more perfect fit for that. Um, the concern was always accuracy. I think that is concern has played out pretty accurately from all of us. I mean, he, he just doesn't throw – um, doesn't throw a great ball. He, he's not a great thrower, uh, but he is a freak athlete. He is going to be kind of, they're going to have to pay attention to him. This might be a great Kari Coleman game if he's healthy and available to kind of spy him, keep him under wraps. Um, so yeah, I mean, it kind of sucks the situation he's in, but at the same time, I mean, he's getting the opportunity to start in state at Auburn coming from, from Hoover. So I don't feel that bad for him. You know, the circumstances might suck, but the fact is he's playing, so it's not that big of a deal. True. The, uh, I just I, So he probably – him leaving was probably a combination of the Cristobal leaving and then um, the five-star coming in, and I forget that kid's name, just a situation where that kid was never seen in the field of Oregon, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were, they recruited – they kind of out-recruited him or over-recruited him, at least maybe in his mind. Um, then Bo Nix transferred, so we know he's not playing this year. I think he was like – you know, this is probably my time to leave. I always thought Oregon was a weird fit um, once uh, he decommitted from us or Bain kind of made him decommit. Um, and then – And Moorhead leaves Oregon. Yeah, like Oregon never made sense to me. I mean, Cristobal, you know, you know what I think of him as a coach. So I was always like, eh, I don't know about that, um, especially in that kind of offense. Uh, it, was, it was a little odd, but, you know – He's found his place, and I think he's doing just fine, all things considered. I guess we'll turn this into a weekly thing, but I uh, I kind of let this rip on the newsletter that I uh, put out a couple hours ago, first one in a while, whatever, life happened. I kind of avoided the West conversation and the stakes and Ole Miss's chances of capturing their first Western Division crown. I don't really think the uh, conversation's premature anymore. They're undefeated at the halfway point. Granted, it's only two SEC games. They're not halfway through the SEC season, but – you look around this league, uh, you know, Alabama, excuse me, Arkansas looks kind of like a broken emotional team. They have a yeah. terrible secondary. Um, LSU's down. Auburn's way down. You know, Alabama was three yards away from losing to an A&M team that we spent three weeks crapping on. Where do you give, like, I don't, I don't know how good this Ole Miss team is, but I know they're well coached. I know they run the football and I know they play defense. And, you know, with Alabama feeling a little more gettable, they're still the prohibitive favorite. It feels like that Ole Miss should be in the conversation and have as good of a puncher's chance as anyone else in the league. I'd probably put Mississippi State in that category with them. I know State already has one loss. But in just if you're power ranking how good the teams are in the West, this is a very unique year. Um, one of the things I outlined and that we talked a little bit about on Sunday was last time Ole Miss was 7-0, and Hugh Freeze in 2014. Well, LSU was a top 25 team. That was a raucous environment game day. That was a, always going to be a tough game. They lose that game. They come back and face an Auburn uh, offense led by Nick Marshall. Crazy game, Treadwell play, whatever. Yeah, That's a grind. Then they have to play Arkansas on the road, and Wallace gets hurt. And State was a one-loss State team that year. That's not what they're facing. What they're facing down the stretch is not easy by any stretch. Having to go to LSU, having to go to Arkansas, having to go to A&M. It's not easy, but none of those teams are having very good years. And that probably is what lends itself to make this a rational conversation. I, I just, how do you gauge their chances of doing it? Because 
fair, unfair, whatever. I think the first time that I probably let myself think that they could get to 10 wins was when they beat Kentucky. But now I kind of gauged the season through their chances of winning the SEC Western Division crown. And some of that is the fact that what Alabama has to go up against. They have to go to Knoxville to play a Tennessee team that's on fire. If oh, yeah. Tennessee catches them, a gettable Alabama team, you're one up in the loss column. You still have to play them head-to-head. I get it. They win. They went out. It, I understand tiebreakers uh, yeah. at MIS education. But the point being is the way the everything is setting up is benefiting this team, even though I'm not sure how good they are. And that's what makes it a realistic conversation. I think this is the first time, you know, I'm not huge in Ole Miss history, but it feels the first time that I have paid attention to this program and worked for this program, been around this program, that it's all about Ole Miss, truly all about Ole Miss. Um, in every single game from here on out, it is what are we going to do against Auburn? You are the better football team. How are you going to respond playing 11 name at home? If you do what you're supposed to do, you play the way you're supposed to play. You should win that game. LSU, I, I've seen this movie script before. The 7-0 team going into Tiger Stadium playing an LSU team that you are better than. Um, Hollywood has made the sequel to this. I mean, it is – it is just the the thorn in Ole Miss's side. And I thought it was interesting. I, I listened to, to Chase talking about how this was such a unique Ole Miss baseball season because just somehow, some way, they kind of got through all of those thorns they had in the past. And they you got know, a they, fortunate draw. They got a, a very fortunate, fortunate draw. draw. Yeah, and I think I would say Ole Miss's schedule so far has been fortunate, but they, you know, they go on the road regional and win it. They play the road super regional and they finally get to Omaha. And it's like, okay, this team, not only do they seem like they're destined to win, but they're, they're kind of beating those demons of the past. Now I think truly more than ever, the LSU game will, will truly decide if this team can win the West. Cause I, that it, it seems stupid. I mean, I was just shitting all over LSU's crowd and atmosphere and everything. But what I think I can guarantee, one thing I can guarantee is that if Ole Miss beats Auburn, and they go and they are top 10 undefeated 230 in Tiger Stadium, it is going to be an incredibly difficult place to play. That is a guarantee. Um, you know, that's a game they want to win badly. It's a game Ole Miss wants to win badly. It is always an interesting game when Ole Miss is the better team. It seems like it doesn't always work out like it should. Um, and then not to mention, that will be their first true road game. Yes. And that is – Third just week, fourth week October, first true road game. That's it, not it, common. It's not common. It has really not been talked about. I mean, Georgia Tech is not a road environment. Vanderbilt is not a road environment. That will be one. And it will be interesting to see how they respond. But like I said earlier, it's really all about Ole Miss. If you play the way you're supposed to play, you are better than them. And then you should beat them. You should beat them. You are better than them at almost every phase of the game, especially special teams. Um, uh, and then, you know, then you start looking out. It's A&M on the road. Alabama was their, was their all-in game. It was their throwing the entire kitchen sink, except for a two-point conversion or your two-yard play. Everything else was, like, as good as you can get. And it still took four turnovers and two missed field goals for it to be close. A&M has an insane amount of talent. I mean, I was watching that game fully, and every single guy they had on defense, 
I was like, fuck, I remember evaluating him. He was a baller. Uh, God, I remember that name. He was a five-star. But they haven't put it together, and they're still not a good football team. You should win that game if you're Ole Miss and you do what you're supposed to do. And then, of course, Alabama comes. And that's, you know, that's the hurdle. In, in my opinion, Ole Miss is better than every other team on their schedule except for them. You just have to beat them. I mean, it's as simple as that. It, like, you, we can go into all of the X's and O's and concepts and, you know, yada, yada, yada. You just have to win the game. And there's been very few situations in Ole Miss's past, especially recent past, where you win that one game and you are basically winning the West. I mean, not, it's not guaranteed because you still have to go play at Arkansas and maybe they'll have some sort of resurgence. And Mississippi State looks like they're a team with a completely new purpose after the second half of LSU. But it's, it's sitting right there for you. The, you know, looking through the lens of this season now is winning the West is something that you probably should do because I think at this point the expectation is you should be competing to win the West. Not because, you know, because of what it's in front of you, not necessarily what we thought of before the season or where the program's at, but this is just the situation you're in. It's a weird year in the SEC. Teams are down, other teams are up, and you're fortunate that you've beaten the best team on your schedule so far, and the next one is coming in three weeks. But they have to get past LSU. I, th- I think this entire season hinges on that LSU game because this team hasn't faced an adversity of a loss. These transfers haven't lost. You know, this team together has only won. And I, I get concerned about that one. And, you know, it's not from some LSU fan perspective. It's because I've seen it. I've seen it happen before. I'm, I am scarred from talking so much shit to my friends and family in 2014 and then just having it thrown directly back in my face. And I will be doing that again when we go there undefeated, talking shit to my friends and family. And I just don't want to see that happen again, especially when it shouldn't. So, I mean, that, that I understand why you're looking at it from that perspective, because you should be at this point. Absolutely. And there's some weird parallels to the baseball season, right? I mean, I remember talking with Colin, like after they won the regional at Miami, I was like, is this team going to like go to Omaha and make a deep run? And the last test was that raucous environment against Southern Miss. Like, can you survive that? And then they got about six innings into that series. And it was like, actually, you know, Southern Miss can't hit SEC pitching. They cannot hit Dylan DeLucia. They cannot hit Hunter Elliott. Like this is, this is, I think this is over. And then at that point it was like, they may actually go win the whole thing. I got that. That was that felt like the LSU game. If they, you know, we thought they'd get to seven and zero if they played well, right? They should win this weekend, barring something crazy. Can you pass that first hurdle? And then that's when the conversation, I think, becomes real, real, kind of like getting through the super regional against Southern Miss. And it's a, it's a fascinating thing to look at, just because there's not a lot of years where it's like this. Because, okay, congrats, you beat LSU to go to eight and zero. You're probably going to have three just absolute slobber knockers of a game left. And it's not like Ole Miss is not playing stiff competition as we just outlined, but it's it's not what Fayetteville could be on, um, you know, the second to last week of the year. It's not what A&M could be. They're very good. They could very much lose those games, but it's, it's more gettable than it felt in the past. And then with Alabama being somewhat pedestrian, it's, it's again, we'll, we'll revisit this over the next couple of weeks, but it is starting to get more real and it will become like actually real, real if they can win these next two football games to bounce around the sec before we get out of here though. What did you make of the A&M Alabama thing? It just kind of was, so they played Haynes, Haynes King. He kind of looks lost early. Then he makes a couple of decent throws. They're running the ball okay. And their defense was just very opportunistic, which you have to do to beat Alabama. They forced a bunch yeah. of turnovers. 
And I still didn't think they'd get three yards away from winning the game. That was still, as it was happening, I was like, this isn't real. This isn't going to happen. But like the exact same way. (laughs) You're a better play call away from that happening. Look, it was a terrible play call. It ended like we thought it would. But at the same time, non-feed is non-feed. They got into that end zone. Alabama lost. There was no go back down the field and score. That, That was just it. And that kind of is a testament to Alabama one being gettable. But I'm just curious what you made of that game because do you think it was A&M finding itself at all or do you just think it was the fact that their defense played really well and they ran it okay and they gave them their best shot? Like, did, I don't know if you'll find a resurgent A&M to answer my own question there, but where do you where do you put that on the scale of who it said more about? I think you just have to look at it in like the context of this single game. This was A&M's all-out game. This was also a game where Bryce Young did not play football. True. I, I think, you know, that we're giving AM a lot of credit for Jalen Miller basically just giving them the ball three times, just handing it to him on a platter. And then uh, Gibbs, you know, AM made a great play, but he just gave him the ball again, too. Then they missed two field goals and they still won the football game. So I'm not going to go out here and give AM all this credit. I mean, Hangs King made plays when he needed to. Um, they still have, you know, some pretty dynamic athletes. A chain, Evan Stewart's a freak. The Marshall kid, Chris Marshall kid's really good. Defensively, they, they took advantage of the mistakes Alabama made. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, Alabama begged them. They they gave them the game on a silver platter, and AM was like, "No, thank you. I will be losing." Um, so I'm not. I don't think AM's a good football team. I think they put it all out on the line. Alabama gave them the opportunity to win without, you know their best player on the field and they couldn't take it, which is what bad football teams do. Um, I, they are not good. They, they are going, who they play this next week. Do we know? A&M is, are they, they off? Like at South Carolina? That's what, yeah. You know? Good call. They might be off and then at South Carolina. And then there was some rumor about Haynes King being hurt. So they might have to go to the five-star kid, um, Weigman, who, I mean, I liked as a high school player, but you don't know what he's at right now. And he's definitely not a fit for Jimbo's offense. That'll be interesting to see if that matriculates. Uh, but Alabama is still Alabama. I mean, Gibbs is just phenomenal. I he's mean, unbelievable. He is, he is unbelievably good. He's exactly what we thought he was out of high school. He's exactly the player he was at Georgia Tech. I mean, you don't, it's very rare you see your running back out there like returning kicks, sometimes returning punts. I mean, he, he's a freak. Um, they, they run the ball pretty well. But if they're without Bryce Young, they're there for the taking. Um, that's that's pretty clear from that game. You saw it up close in person. This line's seven and a half. And I'm about Alabama, Tennessee. Am I crazy for thinking Tennessee may win this game? I don't think you're crazy. No. I mean, that's going to be an insane environment. Um, I don't know what Bryce's situation is. I can't imagine he's taking a whole lot of practice snaps. He's probably just trying to get healthy. Um, Tennessee's offense is tough. I mean, they, they are a well-oiled machine. They are, you know, Bryce Petty Baylor. They are, they, that's literally what they are. Hendon Hooker is a hell of a football player. Um, defensively, I think they're a little bit better than, than, than advertised. They have actually a really good defensive line. Um, they get pressure. They're pretty good on run defense. They're incredibly aggressive because they know that on the back end, they're not great. But as we've seen so far, Alabama's receivers, you know, obviously they're talented, but, you know, you know, it's not Devontae Smith, Jerry, Judy, and, and Waddle out there. It's, it's guys who are young, who are still athletic and good, but they're not exactly beating you over the top. So 
I don't think you're crazy. I think if Bryce Young plays and is 80%, then I think Alabama will win the game. But no, I, I, I mean, the line shows you the respect they're giving Tennessee. I mean, it's not all, not every day you see Bama under 10 um, and dropping, by the way. So I, I don't know. I, don't, I think they can win it. I, I don't necessarily think they will, though. That would be a huge break for Ole Miss, obviously. Just bounced around to a couple of quick ones. Uh, talk about the week-to-week change in how you view someone or a coach or a player in college football. Uh, Rich Scangarello was kind of all the rave for Kentucky. I think he drew uh, kind of rave reviews for the first five weeks, play calling, what have you. Then they lose Will Levis for a game, and I don't know how much you caught of this game. Nothing Kentucky did made any sort of sense with the backup quarterback from the reverse to start the game that ended up giving South Carolina a touchdown. South Carolina is up seven to nothing in the second quarter. I think they had like one or two first downs. It, it was a disaster. I left the Ole Miss game thinking Kentucky was a pretty good football team with a bad offensive line. Are you, do you change your opinion at all? Because that felt like more than a backup quarterback thing. South Carolina is not good. South Carolina doesn't have a pass rush. That game plan was completely anemic. Is this a Kentucky team that's going to fade again? Like, I, I was very shocked by that. I, I thought, you know, to hammer Kentucky minus five and a half. I was like, nah, South Carolina's not any good. Like, Kentucky will figure this out. I was shocked by that result. It didn't get a lot of pub, but my God, that was horrendous. Yeah, no, that was that was really bad. I didn't get to see a lot of it, but I did see a little bit of it. Um, it was pretty clear that South Carolina was motivated in this game. I think you saw that from Beamer after the game. And I think motivation is in like specific motivation is such an underrated part of some of these games, um, especially at least from a betting perspective. If I had known about all that media stuff, I would have hammered South Carolina um, because you knew they were going to come out like that. Um, I, I do think this is a lot of uh, losing your, you know, best player, your f- potential first round quarterback and, you know, having absolutely no depth at that position. I mean, the guy they yeah. put in there was, was not capable of playing an SEC football game. And then when you have a really bad offensive line, so you can't run the ball and, you know, kind of make Levis that. Levis masked your, a lot of their flaws, and that was exposed too. Absolutely was. Um, I don't think Kentucky's a bad team. I think Will Levis, I mean, it's pretty clear he was injured. He might have been injured that for the majority of that Ole Miss game, which is why he really never used his legs. It kind of does make sense now um, why he, like, was not running around or anything. But it, it's going to look – from at least a national perspective for Ole Miss, I know fans are going to hate to hear this. They're going to have to earn some more respect now because I think some people already thought they should have lost a Kentucky game. And now Kentucky is potentially in a spiral without their quarterback. And I don't think they're beating Mississippi State this weekend. And rightfully so from the Ole Miss earning more respect side, because I still don't know how good they are. Yeah, no, exactly. So there'll be a lot more of that. But yeah, Kentucky looks like they're in trouble. And then Beamer, you know, he's – I don't know how I feel about him. I feel like at some point you kind of have to give up the shtick or you're going to turn into like a Will Healy kind of deal where I'm not sure people can take you seriously, but his players respond to it. And that's kind of really all that matters. I mean, they, they play their ass off for him. Um, Spencer Rattler still sucks, but you know, they, they kind of get it done. They have more athletes slowly, but surely. And, you know, they play hard. They're five, are they five and two, four and two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, four and two, I believe. I mean, yeah, I think they've beaten every team they're supposed to beat, and they've lost to, I mean, an Arkansas team that was fully healthy and and Georgia, yeah, no shit. Um, so they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do at this point. So I, it's impressive. I'll give them that. 
very few skills I picked up as a reporter. One is to call bullshit when I see it and kind of know a fraud. I've still been duped a time or two. Is that a shtick or is Beamer just kind of a cool guy? Because I've actually been pro Beamer in terms of some of the stuff. Like the, he got caught crap for like he got caught asked the question after the uh, Georgia loss about like the fight and the guy he was like, no, come on, Phil. Like I, that actually felt genuine to me. That felt like a guy that had had like three beers and was like, I'm tired of I'm tired of these dumb questions that you're asking me next to me I, again you would know better than i would i didn't know a ton about chain beamer is that a stick because it honestly some of it does feel a little genuine uh no, no, no i do think it's genuine it's just like if you want to kind of present yourself as you know a major program yeah. like if you're going to really be dancing in the locker room after beating kentucky or you know are, are you going to keep are you going to keep doing this are you going to do this after every game you know, I, I, he's clearly a, a very family oriented guy. And like after every interview, he's down there, like with his son and daughter, which is great, but it's like, it's in your face. It, it is getting to be in your face. It's beginning to be a little, you know, holier than now, but not necessarily on the Dabo level, but like a look how genuine I am at like yeah. every single stop. Um, but at the end of the day, like I said earlier, like his team like loves him. And they respond to it. So, you know, if that's what you need to do, and, you know, college football is a different game. Not everyone can be Saban or Brian Kelly where they're just, like, cerebral the whole time and have no fun. Um, and he, he clearly does. So I don't, I, I don't want to call it a shit. That's probably not the right way of doing it. But, like, at some point when you start winning games, you're, like, you're maybe not supposed to win. And improving consistently as a program, it's like maybe we're going to dial it down on, like, some of the props. Last thing before we get to the fastest growing segment on American soil, I don't disagree with your take on the uh, on the motivation piece of it, but it was more shock. That was maybe part of the shock value. Kentucky is like that's a damaging loss for the whole uh, Stoops thing. Like you, you uh, look, they were at a one loss. They still had everything in front of them, and now like for a team that had aspirations of at least you know getting to that Georgia game with like who knows what could happen of winning the East type of thing. Now that's screwed. Like, even with the backup quarterback, you can't get motivated to go run over a South Carolina team that's not that talented. That was shocking to me. I, I just, again, I, can't, huge, I know I'm beating a dead horse. I just can't get over it. Huge step back for that program. And it's unfortunate it's, because I do think the majority of it was the injury to their best player. Like, that's just a fact that, you know, it's hard to win without your quarterback. But just the momentum they've had as a program, like coming into this season, it was like, we finally got the quarterback. We're not running, you know, Lynn Bowden at Wildcat anymore. Like we've got a very good offensive coordinator. You know, we've got skill position players for the first time. Our defense is maybe not its best that it has been, but it's still like a pretty damn good team. And it is just falling apart. And it begins to make you wonder, especially with kind of the riff he's had with Calipari and the AD and all that. It's like, is this the year that he finally says, you know, I've we, taken we this kinda, as we can go. Yeah, like maybe this is this is the year I take that next gig. Um, and I actually really like Mark Stoops. Um, he's kind of grumpy, but he's kind of my kind of grumpy. Like I do yeah. like him. And, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, 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 you know, buddies with John Summerall, who went played at Kentucky and was coaching there. And like John Summerall is as good as it gets, and he just raves about Mark Stoops every time I talk to him. I'd ask him about him. He's in love with that man so that's that speaks highly enough for me so I think he's going to continue to make that program really really good for what they are but at some point it's like god like especially a season like this two games in a row like maybe this is kind of it 
Yeah, I, I, that tends to be the tea leaves, so I don't know. Interesting week, interesting season ahead. It is now time for the real show, the fastest-growing segment on American soil. It is Soccer Corner. I will pull up the standings again or the, the tables or whatever they call it across the pond. It's still Arsenal. There's still I get it's one point. I get their nine matches into the season, but I just have not seen Man City at the top yet. What's going on in the EPL? Uh, your Manchester United is in fifth place right behind Chelsea. Is this a two-team race? You got Tottenham third. I'm just I, I expected to see a huge lead already, and it just hasn't happened yet. What do we got going on here? No, like we always say, it, it's still early, but Arsenal, in my opinion, f- passed their biggest test of the season <clears throat> on Sunday. Uh, we were watching it before the Saints game. Uh, they, they beat Liverpool three-two, and that I think that was that that was kind of like the you know we're here game. You know we were playing well. We are deserving of being number one in the table. We have won every game except for one loss. Um, you know, that, that's, that's as good as it gets at this point. I mean, that you cannot ask for anything more than that. Um, if I could find odds for Man City to win the league at somewhere around plus 200, I would, you know, put my 401k on it because that's, that is the best team still in this league by a pretty wide margin, though they had a very weird Champions League result today. Uh, they still advance to the, the knockout stage, but very weird um, for them. Uh, but then you've got, I mean, look, it's the, the big six or, you know, the big five, except for Liverpool, uh, is all in the top five. And that's kind of what this league has been. I think Tottenham uh, is better than they were last year. I think they're a deeper team. I don't think they're as electric uh, or not as electric, but the upside is probably not there for them to, to really make a huge run. Uh, Chelsea, as we talked about, is getting used to their new coach. They uh, won their Champions League match to get today on the road at AC Milan in a very another very weird game, um, and they're they're kind of finding their groove a little bit. And then United, Ronaldo scored his 700th goal, so hopefully they'll stop talking about that. But they, you know, beat Everton on the road on Sunday in a you know somewhat unconvincing fashion. But they're kind of at this point just winning games, and that's all you can really ask from them. Um, Liverpool is like the biggest surprise so far. They are just like last year, just have these crazy injuries. I mean, it's like squad, complete squad injuries where their entire midfield is out. You know, their, their defensive players are injured and they're just, they've been kind of getting their, their ass kicked recently. Um, they're really struggling. Um, and I, I don't know, it's going to be a long road back for them more than I think most people would imagine. I started diving into the champions league, uh, uh, this past week while bored at work um, may have been a conference call that ran too long. There are some teams in the champions league that just aren't up to snuff. Like there's a lot of really good clubs, but there's some that just don't add up, but there was like a Czech team or something that lost really badly to one of the British clubs. I can't remember what it was, but I get, it's like the best teams in Europe, but there's like five or six from some of those like smaller country leagues that just don't really, I won't say don't belong, but just aren't really of the caliber. Just happy to be there. Is that kind of how that works? Yeah, well, you have to qualify for it. You know, you're yeah, not right. given a spot. So you have to – I mean, today Juventus played on the road at Maccabee Haifa, which is an Israeli team, and the Israeli team, uh, you know, kicked their ass. They beat them 2-0 at home. So, I mean, though, yeah, like from the brand names and everything, like there are clubs there that, you know, don't necessarily belong, but that is like their biggest game of the year. I mean, Man City went and played at FC Copenhagen, which is – you know, not a great club, but a kind of a usually in the Champions League after winning the Dutch League, 
it was zero zero. And now Man City ended up like with a red card and rotating, but that's kind of what can happen in these games. Um, so yeah, there's definitely teams that are on the lower end. I mean, Shakhtar is, is a team that uh, a lot of people will know they have like a, they're from Ukraine and they have, you know, always a young, a lot of young talent. They tied Real Madrid today. So those Champions League games are tough, especially on the road. Um, so even though some of these lower clubs are in there, I mean, that's like their all out game. And so that's, that's their biggest thing they ever get. So it's still really, really, really hard to win those matches. I could see that. I mean, you got to go play a road game in Ukraine. There's a lot going on there right now. That could be a real tough road test for reasons that have nothing to do with the stadium. The uh, only surprise I see at the top half of the league, we've got AFC Bournemouth cracking the top eight. What what's up with these guys? I don't, I don't know if we've ever talked about AFC Bournemouth, but they are three, three and three, the classic soccer record. I feel like I would love if they allowed the same amount of goals that they've given up. What what's going on here? What, what, what's the story with this club? Um, I mean, their last four matches have been against you know, pretty bad – or actually last five matches against been, have been against really bad teams. But when you're trying to stay up, you know, they're, they're one of the new promoted teams. You kind of have to get results. You know, that they tied Wolves. Then they beat Nottingham Forest 3-2. They tied Newcastle. They tied Brentford. And they beat Leicester. So, I mean, you're tying teams you may be a little bit worse than and beating teams that are – kind of on equal footing at this point in the season. If you're a team like them, that's like what you have to do. Um, so, I mean, they're kind of doing what you'd expect uh, in their next four games. They've got Fulham, Southampton, West Ham, Tottenham. So, like, you know, not exactly murderer's row, but I don't expect them to win many of those games. But when you're trying to stay up, it's a lot about surviving that first year, getting draws, getting points on the road, um, and winning home games versus teams that you're – similar or better than so that they've done a good job over the past month of doing that so they were a call-up team the real reason i mentioned them is uh they sacked their manager in true british fashion they are already on an interim guy they lost nine nothing to liverpool and told some schmuck named uh, scott parker to hit the uh, hit the road pal like five matches in you just get caught up to the premier league one match and it's like sorry pal you're done that I guess it's worked, but it just no. Like this, it, this is your shot. Like it's like you have to stay up because if you go back down, I mean, shit, you may never get back up. So if you have to fire your manager after getting embarrassed, you have to do it. Buy new players, figure shit out. Like you know, that's what a lot of these clubs are doing. There's so much money in the sport now. There's so much new ownership money for a lot of these clubs these days. It's like once they get to this league, I mean, Nottingham Forest bought 27 players. 27 players. Because this was like, this is our fucking shot. Now they're playing like shit and they're at currently in 19th. But, you know, they're shooting their shot at least. And, you know, it's some some ways working, some ways not. Bournemouth is in uh, the Charlton. Some place you could have told me it was on Antarctica and I would have never heard of it. I, I would take their word for it that it's in England. Last thing I really got is uh, I've been on this for a couple weeks now. I feel like we've done about four straight soccer corners and uh, the poor guys over at Wolverhampton, they've been stuck on three goals for going on, you know, changing seasons here um, from summer to fall. I, I, I Look, they've scored three goals there in the first relegation spot. I just – if I'm buying season tickets to Wolverhampton Wanderers match and I'm getting one goal every three time I show up to the park, I'm probably canceling. What Again, I get it, long season, they'll probably end up okay. I know they've been up for a couple of years, but – does this become the Nathaniel Hackett that you can't watch this product? How, how does this work? Like I, that would enrage me. No one is Nathaniel Hackett. <laughs> I, <laughs> no can't, I can't compare anybody to that fraud. Um, 
No, I mean, they, they sacked their manager just recently as, as, as normal as that happens. Uh, I, I think they just hired a new one. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe they get that kind of new manager, new tactics bump and they, they begin to score um, their best player or not, maybe not their best player, but their striker who was really, really promising Jimenez is actually a Mexican player um, had like a crazy head injury like almost they broke his skull. I think it was like during the COVID season. So and not day still, to day. Not day to day. He's still playing. And he uh, came back with like that. What? Rap, a rap, no, he's still playing. He plays now. No, it's it crazy. You, you can look work? it up. You can look it up. I, I didn't really know much about it. Um, but he was like, that's when they were kind of in a groove. Like they really, they had all these Portuguese, these talented Portuguese players. And he was like, up top like being one of their best players and that crazy injury happened he like has not come back um the same player understandably by the way um, yeah i was about to say you might not have a brain yeah and um so i mean yeah they're not an interesting team to watch they are firmly in the conversation of, of going down but i do think they have enough players enough talent and with a new manager to kind of figure it out We'll close the fastest growing segment on American soil with proof that this is the real football. You got guys to crack skulls getting back out there the next week, not even on the injury report pre-match day. He is Weldon Rodenberg. I appreciate the time as always, my friend, and we'll chat after the Auburn game. All right, see you, man. All right, that is our show. If you made it to the end, I appreciate you making this podcast a part of your day and for listening as always. I don't say that often enough, but I do really mean it. It's uh, It's been a joy to continue to do this, and I'm really fired up about six, seven weeks ahead as uh, this team kind of barrels down the home stretch of its season. So stick around for a while, will you? We'll be back on Friday with uh, something interesting and then fresh cuts. Still hadn't quite figured out what that is, but uh, we'll have something for you and uh, get you kick-started into the weekend. You'll have a great middle of your week.